Today's readings are Matthew 11, 2 through 11, and James chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. They can be found on pages 899 and 1120 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as up on the screen. This is God's word. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare the way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And James 5, 7 through 10. Be patient, then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You, too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, As an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our God of grace, as we look at these words and we look for them to become alive and active somehow in our our life, in our imaginations, in our psyche, in our emotional world. We do that from different places. So whether we sit here with pain, loss, or joy and gratitude, whatever the case may be, we pray that we would hear from this story and from these words what would amount to us to be your voice. Something that, that, that pierces through all the other noise in our life and functions to guide, to provide grace, to heal, and to lead us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Charlotte Hartford 
from the UK was on the hunt for the perfect chairs for her deck. And she decided to shop online for the first time to find them. She ended up finding the ultimate bargain. I knew what I wanted, an old-fashioned deck chair, and people were saying to me, you should look on eBay, and that there were some good offers on the internet, said Hartford. After searching around online, Hartford finally came across the perfect pair of chairs, exactly like the ones she was picturing. They were on Amazon, and better yet, the deal was incredible, $3 per chair and only $7 shipping. Cha-ching! Hartford was quick to snap up the offer and immediately bought them. When the delivery day arrived, Hartford was confused to see that no large parcels had been dropped off at her home. Instead, she received only a small envelope in the mail. Confused, she initially thought the package was for her daughter, but after her daughter denied having ordered anything, Hartford opened the package to discover her beach chairs. Wait, what? That's right, instead of ordering full-size deck chairs, Hartford had instead ordered two miniature doll-sized chairs that were barely four inches tall. Whoops. It's actually, I don't know if you've heard, that's actually, there's a lot of stories of that, of that happening. People ordering, you know, you see the picture and you're like, yeah, the picture, forget to read all the, and so people do this. They order the wrong thing that comes in the mail. They've ordered doll-sized furniture. I'm sure you have, I'm sure you have instances in your life like this where, you know, you're kind of following the signs, you're following the information given to you, and you suddenly find yourself just at the, in the wrong place, you know. Uh, over Thanksgiving, my wife and I, our whole family, we're down in San Diego, and there's this, this part of San Diego called Coronado Island, right? And, and we went to, to um, Village Pizzeria on Coronado Island to meet our friends. But, and we got there, we got all our family out of the car, which is no small feat, and we were walking there. And we get there, and they say, are you sure this is the right Village Pizzeria on Coronado Island? You know, it's just these things. You're like, are you kidding me? There's two of these. Yeah, you know San Diego, right? It's not that huge. It's not that big. Coronado Island is it's not that huge of a place. Well, there's two of them. So we had to get back in the car and go, you ever, you ever get these moments in life where you're like, What? How did, I, how did this happen? This, doesn't, this isn't what I, where I thought the signs were pointing. We want things that we see with our eyes in life to function like foolproof, neon signs guiding us towards whatever our anticipated future is. We hate to be confused. We hate to end up surprised. We hate to be disappointed. We don't like it when the signs turn out to mislead. You know, a lot of times life does this to you, though, and how do you react? You know, when life basically treats you this way, it's, it's like, use this metaphor, like you're, you've got this ticket and it says Hawaii on it, and you're like, I'm going to Hawaii, and then you get on this plane that says Hawaiian Airlines, and you're, you get on that plane, and then all of a sudden the plane's landing, and you look out the window, and it's a desert, <laughs> and you see a sign come into full view, Sub-Saharan Africa. It's like, have you ever had that moment in life, that, that metaphorical moment, where you're like, what? This is not what I ordered. Right? And how do you react when life does that? Well, how do you react when that happens, when you get into that spot? I know mine, for me, it's, I say, not fair. I mean, I just go straight back to that young, you know, thing I see in my, in my youngest kids, you know, four, five, six years old. Not fair. Not what I was expecting. Not fair. Or maybe you look at yourself and you say, um, I, maybe I, did I do something wrong? 
did I mess up somewhere along the way? Or maybe, you, maybe that's not you. Know, we're all very different. You might be the type that says, no, I don't do that. I say, it's your fault. You know, you look around and you go, who's closest, right? Who did this? Or like so many, so many times I've heard people articulate this in one way or the other, basically to say, it's God's fault. God's a jerk, right? Or the number of times I've heard people just basically say, because of some way that life didn't line up the way they were told or by the script they were given that they were following perfectly, I can't, this, this whole thing with God, it can't be what I do. It can't be true. It can't be true for me. And, and of course, what it all comes down to is what lens, what lens are you putting over your life when you look at your experiences, when you interpret your disappointments? What lens have you put on to help explain it? To help explain when there's an unexpected or scary diagnosis that arrives in your, in your family, a medical diagnosis? What lens do you put on when a marriage crumbles or a marriage never materializes? What lens, how do you make sense of it when an election goes either the way you wanted or the way you didn't want? Or your career is hitting walls and you're underperforming? What lens do you use? Mental illness puts an unexpected imprint on the rest of your family's life. How do you, what do you, how do you make sense of that? What lens do you have? Quite frankly, a lot of us have one way or another in which we're basically saying, this is what it looks like when God is at work. This is what it looks like when God is present. Maybe you don't even use the, the word God. Maybe there's some other way, other way of saying, but that's basically what we're saying. This is what I imagine it looks like when everything goes right, when God has God's way in my life, in politics, in the world, in church. In John the Baptist, it turns out, this is the story in Matthew 11, um, not talking about the James text, but the Matthew 11 text today. This is a story where John the Baptist is basically outed for having a checklist like that. Having, he has a lens that he's saying, this is what it means for God to be at work. And since I, John the Baptist, am here to proclaim the coming Messiah, the, the, the one that God is sending then I, you know, I think I know something about what that's going to look like. And so he has a list. And he's basically sending his followers to Jesus. If you caught that story, he's sending his followers to Jesus. And, and basically, here's the data that John has going, going with him that's kicking around him in his head, that's bothering him. I'm in prison, <laughs> number one, right? Wait, I thought God was doing some big, powerful thing. Wait, I'm in prison, and this, this Jesus character isn't lining up. He's not seeming to do the kinds of things the, that we, we had hoped for, that we had expected. We're not profiting in the way that we thought we would profit. We're not getting our movement moved forward in the way we thought we would get it moved forward. And so John's basically on the fence. John the Baptist, the one who's supposed to be promoting, kind of clearing the way for Jesus, he's on the fence. And he's, in a way, he's outed as being a, a very human, flawed prophet, which if you we shouldn't be surprised because prophets in the Bible are always kind of flawed. And I mean, Just take Jonah. Remember Jonah? God said, go here, and he went as far away as he could the other way, right? So, okay, so Jonah, so Jonah John, the, John the Baptist is flawed, and he's coming out with, he's definitely got a checklist. One, um, 
One commentator, really, really uh, insightful commentator named Ben Witherington III, uh, put it this way. Let me get, I, I didn't bring the paper, so I got it on my phone here. He, he, this is how he kind of itemizes how Jesus is not lining up for John the Baptist. In the first place, Jesus did not come simply repeating John's warning of looming judgment on God's people. He came proclaiming the inbreaking dominion and salvation of God for the least, the last, and the lost. In the second place, Jesus did not take up the mantle and lifestyle of an ascetical prophet like John had done. Jesus ate and drank with sinners and tax collectors and refused to take on himself the clothing and demeanor of one who, who was in mourning. In the third place, Jesus did not assume roles of the Davidic warrior, king, and ruler. Indeed, he preached non-resistance, turning the other cheek and self-sacrificial love. Furthermore, Jesus did not march on Jerusalem, nor did he thunder condemnation on Caesar or his legions. Some or all of this must have been confusing to John. So that's, that's John the Baptist coming with this lens that he had for what Jesus and what the presence of God was supposed to look like. What lenses do we use? What signs are we wrongly paying attention to? I wonder, part, part of me wonders, I mean, Jesus ends up quoting some scripture from Isaiah chapter, um, part of it is like Isaiah 61. Um, and I, I, you know, going back to that part of the Bible and looking around, this is some, some, a couple of verses that I wonder, I wonder if John the Baptist had locked in on some other verses rather than the ones that Jesus quotes here. So what if, what if John the Baptist was looking at Isaiah 60, verse 11, which says, Your gates will always stand open. There will, they will never be shut day and night. You know, the gates of Jerusalem. So that people may bring you the wealth of nations. Their kings led in triumphal procession. And then in Isaiah 61, just, a, just one page over. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will, f you will feed on the wealth of nations. And in, the, in their riches, you will boast. You know, is this, there's a way in which we put on these different lenses of what it's supposed to look like. And John the Baptist's lenses were perhaps not that much different than ours. You know, life's going to get better, right? Things are going to get easier, more comfortable. Our politician's going to win. The, our, our kids are going to make us proud. My business is going to thrive. You know, there's all these things. We got, my spouse will complete me. You know, and all these things we have. Jesus pulls out and he quotes um, some things from some different places. And his quote, his scriptural lens looks like this. Um, let me see if I can find it. He says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk. And those who have leprosy, oh, the people have leprosy. You, you, hideous, I mean, you get them away. Get them far away. Separate from them. He says, leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to who? The poor. This is Jesus' lens. And he says, the, you know, he's saying the kingdom of God. God is here. God has arrived. Again, let me just, just a briefer quote from Ben Witherington. Um, he, he summer, I, like, I, I can't say it any better than this. He says, Jesus would live out the messianic script, you know, the 
being the Savior, the Messianic script playing by his own rules and fulfilling the scriptures which motivated him in his ministry, not some preconceived notion of what a Messiah must do and be. I love that quote. That is exactly what we all need to hear every day if we're going to know anything about Jesus and have him guide our lives. And he goes on to criticize. He goes on to mention some things. He, he says, what did you go out to the desert to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. What did you go out to see? Um, he says, a reed swayed by the wind? Um, the reed was a symbol used by Herod on his coins. Um, he's making some references here related to kings and palaces and power. You know, kind of like where culture looks for the big stuff to be happening, the important things to be going on. And Jesus is kind of saying, where are you looking? What's your lens? If you thought that this Jesus thing or this God thing or, or this season of Advent or being a Christian, if you thought this was about power and success and comfort and wealth, then you're looking for God in all the wrong places. That's the message today. Where are you looking for God to be at work? Are you looking for God in all the wrong places? What does God's activity look like? Does it look like a voice from the clouds? Does it look like lightning striking a corrupt politician? Does it look like a sudden concentration of meaningful coincidences in your life? Or a nun caring for impoverished or diseased souls on their deathbed? Or someone being healed of cancer? Or a quiet, reserved introvert suddenly babbling in an unknown tongue and flailing around at a prayer meeting? I mean, what, is, what, is you, what do you think of is, is the activity of God? You know, if the power had gone out in one of the presidential debates, you know, maybe I think a lot of us would say, thank God, right? <laughs> right? God is at work. God is real. I'm, I'm going to church on Sunday. What does it look like? I mean, seriously think that through. What's your conception of that? There's a book by, um, um, she's passed away now. Her name is Elizabeth Elliot, and she was a missionary to Ecuador. And she, her husband was killed by the, the very people that they were trying to reach. She wrote a book, it's not very popular, it's called No Graven Image. I haven't read it, but I've heard about it, and then I've kind of looked it up, and you know how you kind of look through the plot summary, and you do all this stuff, right? So someday I'll read it. But this is, it's a, it's a shocking concept. She writes, she's a missionary, and she writes this book about a, a woman, single woman missionary going to that same part of the world, Ecuador, to reach this tribe of people. And it's incredibly hard and difficult, and this woman's, you know, uh, just the, the, the difficulty of trying to do this task of get kind of scripture translated to these people to help them know about Jesus. And she ends up having this one link to this tribe who, who knows the, lang the two languages needed. And his name is Pedro. And so it's like God has given her this way in. And then what happens is um, Pedro dies. And he doesn't only, he, it's not, not just that he dies, but he actually, he's getting a really bad infection. And she has, part of what she's brought with her is she has some penicillin. And she tries to treat him right in front of his family. She gives him this injection of penicillin, which makes him have um, an allergic reaction. And he suffocates to death in front of, you know, so this is the story Elizabeth Elliot, the missionary, tells. 
So not only does this, the key to bringing you know, the message of hope and Jesus to these people, not only does he die, but his, his whole family, and then eventually everyone else, believes she killed him, <laughs> right? And it's over, and, sh- and, and, and you know, guess what? The book pretty much ends right there. Now, what, how do you, how, what are your expectations, right, about what it's going to look like for God to be at work? What does it look like? And I think Elizabeth Elliot wrote that book having, and she basically, in the end, some, some people in the Christian world um, uh, actually condemned that book <laughs> because that, no, that, can't be how, that can't be something that you, how God would handle a situation of. So in, in Elizabeth Elliot, when that book was getting controversy, basically said, I, I know that story because I've lived, that, is a, that story is written as a telling of my story. Not like exactly event for event, but that is a way of me telling you my experience. What do we expect it to look like when we do God's work, when God is at work, when we, God arrives in this world? Well, it's going to look different than what our, for sure what our culture, how our culture defines success in the work of God. It might look like a family reorienting their entire life, their entire rest of their life around a child who is born with a severe disability, unable to walk, talk, Respond, right? In a way, Jesus would say, yes, I'm at work there. That's the gospel. Um, Someone who, rather than investing their wealth in themselves and their future, divests their wealth so that they can trust God more. So they're trusting God instead of trusting their retirement accounts. Someone who drops whatever they're doing, however important it is, for the agenda of a child that has come and started talking to them. Someone who's visiting uh, elderly, sick folks, maybe who have dementia and maybe can't respond, just, just for the heck of it, just to, just to visit them, just to spread some love. Or a spouse staying in a very difficult marriage when friends and family would say, you have every reason in the world to run for the hills. There's this story, maybe you've heard this story, the story of Larissa and Ian. Um, There's been a lot written about them in the last years. Um, And thankfully, I don't have the paper in front of me, so I just get to tell you the story of Larissa and Ian which is usually better. So I'll just tell you the story of Larissa and Ian. Larissa and Ian were dating, and they're both Christians, and they were young. Um, I think they were like just, just into college. And 10 months into their relationship, they were planning their, they were planning their wedding, they were planning to be together forever, and um, Ian got in a car accident, and he was in a coma for months. He had severe brain damage, um, and he couldn't walk, and he couldn't talk. So they're... Here's Larissa, who's a fairly new Christian, and she begins to pray, and she begins to seek God's leading in this terrifying thing that is ahead of her. And what ends up happening, and the reason why people are telling their story is because Larissa, rather than having every reason in the world to, as a young person to, to move into something that was going to be more successful and productive for her future... Um, she moved, instead of moving away, she moved in. She literally moved in 
to where Ian, um, Ian's home after he came out of the hospital and began to be his caregiver and committed to um, marrying him someday anyway. And that's just a picture. You say, what is... In a way, John the Baptist is looking at what Jesus is doing and saying, oh, that's so sad. You know how sometimes people say that? Something happens and they say, oh, that's so sad. Sometimes it really is really sad. Sometimes it's, we're saying that because we're disappointed that the cultural trajectory that we expect didn't get to happen. We go, oh, it's so sad. John the Baptist, in a way, is saying to, about what Jesus is doing, oh, it's so sad. And people might look at Larissa, the story of Larissa and Ian, you can look up more of the details online, and say, oh, so sad. Her life, her really her, her, her happiness taken away from her for the rest of her. No. Because there's a way in which that trajectory of moving away and running from, and then, or moving in, and moving into solidarity with, is what Jesus is saying when he answers John the Baptist. Is it so sad? Is Jesus' trajectory as he, his life goes into that final week and he doesn't take on Jerusalem by force, instead Jerusalem by force takes him on and, and puts him on a cross. Oh, that's so sad, a wasted life. And we learn as Christians, actually, like it's very central to our belief. That's at the center of our power. That's at the center of our joy is what the rest of the world looks at and goes, oh, so sad, a wasted life. And Jesus went into suffering on our behalf to lift us out of it. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we pray that you would um, bring power behind these words and these teachings. In many ways, we need our, our, um, our lenses changed. We're often needing reminders of what the gospel really looks like, what the good news of Jesus really looks like, that we're all more of a mess than we care to admit Yet through Christ, we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. Lord, may we um, find in the picture of who you spent your time with and who you invested in and where you brought love, may we find not only an example for ourselves, but may we also find our own liberation and healing that you have moved towards us in that same way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.